You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Music Biz 101 and more. I'm your host, Professor David Kirk Filth. Uh, our assistant host, Professor Dr. Esteban Marconi, is not with us today on assignment, but we do have a student co-host today, Kate Elsa Shans. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. That's super. Um, today, our guest is Troy Geronimo, the owner of uh, Hit Factory Recording Studios, which is famous for housing multiple sessions of artists like John Lennon, Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, and the East Street Band, and more. It's actually Germano. It's not Geronimo. Germano. <laughs> Germano. So, Troy, we're many, killing you with many, the last name. Many people make that uh, error. It's fine. It's pretty. My last name is Philp, and most people address me, especially over email, as Dear Philip. Yeah, true. So yeah. They don't even get the, the first name right. But I still have a little bit more of the intro to do. Um, so Kate said hello. We just want to give thanks real quick to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. at White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Readers Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business band management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. We want to give thanks to Christine Oyve, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all over the world manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. When you are thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at 4FOURfront.com. Managing Your Band, 7th edition is out now. William Patterson University's music business program once again has been ranked one of the best in the country by Billboard Magazine. That is all our intro stuff. We are now going to begin with Kate Elsa Shans giving Troy Germano the third degree. Thank you, Troy, once again. Uh, You're very welcome. So, Troy, so correct me if I'm wrong, your dad started um, the Hit Factory, correct? He, he did. Um, it actually was a small studio that was started uh, in 1969 by a record producer songwriter named Jerry Ragaboy. And my father purchased the studio from him in 1975. And I shortly thereafter started working for him while still um, in grade school, after school. Um, and then I went to the studios full time in 1981. Uh, after graduating high school. So uh, we built the studios up into a pretty substantial business over the course of the 30 plus years that I was there. Uh, Can you uh, give us a little bit of a background of what it was like growing up around um, the music studio? Did did that incentivize your love for music or um, did you kind of find your passion on your own? No, I think it kind of all helped. And, And before my father owned hit factory he was one of the co-owners of the record plant here in new york city um so i was always around the studios he was a record producer and an artist 
in his own right. Um, so from, from like 1967, 68, uh, when he was going around New York, whether he was working on small record projects or commercials, wherever it might be, I would be with him. At the time I was about four or five years old. So I was always in the studios. So it was kind of a natural progression for me um, as I was in high school and getting ready to prepare to go to college. Um, and then at the last second, I changed my mind and decided to go into the family business. Probably wish I would have gone to the university for four years. Um, so all of you guys are lucky that I've done that never take it for granted. But um, I always kind of felt it was an opportunity for me to get a leg up on everyone and start a little bit earlier, but it helped because my father was my mentor and it, um, it gave me the ability to really learn the business from the, from the ground up, which is what I did from the time I was 12. For sure. Um, did you, along with, you got into the business that young, did you play instruments when you were I younger did. too? I, or I, played, it more? I played piano as a young boy and I also played guitar in high school. Uh, the guitar behind me, uh, the Telecaster, it was a 1981 Fender Telecaster that I had in high school. And uh, it's a, a special piece that I'll always keep. And I occasionally play around a little bit, but not really anything serious. It was really more fun. Um, and I really enjoyed more of the record making side, production side of how records and albums are made, working on different genres of music, watching people do this. Very special people over the years, because fortunately we've been able to build this to something you know quite unique for a family-owned recording studio now that's completely just with me. Yeah, um, that's crazy. So as you got in more involved uh, with the business, what um, were some of your tasks like? Did it start off small or were you just like your dad's second-hand man from the beginning? No, it actually started off when I, when I decided to not uh, pursue a college degree. Um, I started off really the first year I sat in his office and really didn't do anything. And he, you know, kind of reminded me that I had two years and, you know, one math. So you really had to listen. And I really listened for that first year of all different meetings that happened with producers and musicians and artists, and bands and bankers and managers, record label people and engineers. Um, so I kind of just kind of kept my mouth shut and tried to really absorb what was going on as he did his daily business. Um, and it was a great, it was a great way to do it. And I really did mostly just listen, didn't say much, even though I had been around all these musicians for a good part of my life. Um, and I started off after that, I was the tape librarian taking care of all the analog tapes because back then they weren't digital tapes or it was just analog two inch, either 16 track or 24 track. So, uh, growing up like around all of that and seeing all of that music being made. I know a lot and like sitting back and listening to everything is something that probably a lot of people can relate to here because we're all starting out or have been in um, either the pop program or uh, one of the music programs here at school for a few years. And a lot of it's very overwhelming. So it's a lot of information to take in, you know what I mean? Um, so uh, seeing that from a young age probably helped you um, see that you could take your dad's um, business a little bit farther, right? So uh, that, was exactly, that was exactly the goal. So, um, and kind of the two of us as a team were more than two people. It really felt like 10 as we started to grow yeah. and I started to mature and there's a bit more confidence and um, it was a good thing. And, and you know, again, we try to always make these studios and I still do to this day where they're multi-genre. So, you know, we, in the early days, we did tons of rock records tons of R&B records and then it kind of you know it kind of grew into film uh, mixing and TV soundtrack mixing and then of course you know a, a, a little bit of, of classical and jazz but um, the real big change kind of happened in the, the mid to early I mean, I'd say mid 80s when we started to do more hip-hop records um, and then you know the hip-hop portion of what we did here at the studios was as important as the rock records and the R&B records um, and of course, a lot of pop records. So those those are kind of the four disciplines that still to this day at the Germano Studios, which is now transitioning to being just the hit factory again. Yeah. Um, it's it's a combination of hip hop, rock, uh, pop, and R and B. That's those are the four main things that we do here. Uh, so yeah, the idea was to kind of grow this as much as possible. We had many different locations between New York, London, and Miami. Um, I think this location now, this location is our seventh location in the history of the company. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a great experience and I love music and I wouldn't do this uh, 
I didn't really enjoy it. Being in the studios and giving people the ability to create is really what this is all about. Yeah, for, uh, yes. Uh, what uh, factors, you were talking about your expansion in uh, London and Miami and New York and all these locations. What factors help you decide um, when you need to expand and what expanding looks like? So is it um, generally by genre? So like, do you guys have more of a, um, like let's just say an R&B uh, focus in New York or like a focus in London that's more on the pop side, like where? No, well, presently we just have the New York studios here in downtown uh, NoHo, um, which is right by New York University. Um, but the rooms are all interchangeable in terms of the styles of music they can work on. So there's really not uh, one room that's dedicated for hip hop and another room that's dedicated for, for, for uh, rock work, for example, or pop work. They're all very interchangeable. And expansion decisions really kind of are based on uh, real estate and the opportunities that present themselves in the market. Um, and then sometimes desire to be in different cities. So I'm looking at a couple of the you know, possibilities right now that we may expand to. Um, because at one point when my father was alive, we had between New York and Miami, um, we had about 22 different studios between recording, uh, mixing, writing, and mastering studios. And now we're down to two. So it's in this building downtown, it's two. It's the building where Keith Herring had his uh, original studio. And now that studio upstairs as an art studio is his foundation, it's the Keith Herring Foundation. So that's what kind of attracted me to the building. Um, and I gutted the whole place. So when you do expand, it's an expansion sometimes of, of the actual physical space. It's the equipment. Sometimes it's just uh, atmospheric things, you know, vibe in terms of the way the place looks and the colors on the walls and the type of fabric that you use and the different materials and woods. So there's a lot of different things that factor into what expansion really is. Yes. What... Um... What does the expansion from like start to finish um, not look like per se? Because like I can understand you're redoing the space, but like from a business point of view, what does it look like? Like how long do these um, expansions take? Well, it depends. Usually, usually rooms. When you, if you're going to rebuild a room or build a new room from scratch, it's you know from the planning point to the point that it opens, it's anywhere from eight months to a year. Um, and then of course, part of the, the most important part that goes into this is making sure you have a clientele that's going to fill those other rooms because a recording, recording studios on this level, this would be you know, the last of some of the major studios in New York. There aren't that many left. Um, it's based on obviously economics, you know, what the billing is actually going to be and how are you going to service, you know, the investment or the debt or however you, you know, put the money together to do it. Um, this has always been a privately held company. It's my dad and same thing with me. Um, but, you know, our main clients are Sony Universal, and Warner and those three music groups compromise, comprise 80% of all music that's released around the world. The other 20% will be independent on the stuff uh, on their own. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it all factors in how it's gonna you know, play into what those three major labels wanna do here. A lot of times when artists come in here, bands come in here, they pay for themselves as well. It's not necessarily just the record labels, even though they're signed to those labels. Um, so you're really, you're trying to cater to many different personalities and different experiences and, and decades of music. Um, uh, we do a lot of new stuff here as well. Um, so we're really kind of trying to be, you know, as vibrant as we possibly can. And that all factors into expansion. But to build a studio, design it and get it approved. Yeah, it's like an eight to 10, eight, eight to 12 month process. Okay. What um, you're talking about, you uh, just said that you have multiple different types of artists that you're all uh, kind of like uh, you have to be aware of who you're trying to please in this situation right a while ago we had um, one of our alumni Teresa who's a tour uh, assistant tour manager for Tyler the creator come in and she was talking about that and what it's like working with different artists uh, can you tell us any uh, stories or experiences that you've had dealing with artists and kind of what you have to do to uh, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but read the room and how to um, push these artists uh, to where you would like the recording session to go or where they need the recording session to go. Well, I think when, when an artist or a band comes in here, um, they're coming in with a producer or producers and they either use our staff engineers or they bring in their own engineer 
but on the recording side, you just want them to be as comfortable as possible and be able to achieve the creativity that was their goal. You know, there's so many records that are made today in people's laptops and in people's basements, and that's, you know, garage band type stuff. And that's never changed. It's always been the case in the music industry. So a lot of times it's the magic of the musicianship and the songwriting and the actual players that it is where they're recording it or who's the producer. And sometimes, you know, great songs and great vocals, you know, rise to the top. And, uh, and in today's world with less and less recording studios, people have the ability to do a lot inside of their computers. Um, you have to have reasons for, for artists and bands and producers to want to be here. So um, we, we do get, I would say, the cream of the crop, you know, between pop, hip hop and rock and roll. I mean, that's what's kind of always here. Um, just, you know, we're constantly working on great stuff. So it's not any particular stories of things with artists or some of that stuff. I kind of treat this like a, like a church and you know, when people go into a confessional, what goes on in the studio stays in the studio. It's mostly very private. It's a very, it's a very you know, uh, personal situation for people when they're making records. And I think we kind of give them that space here. And I try to put them with you know, staff and engineers that are going to make them you know, reach the goal that they want when they're making their record. And you want people to stay as long as they possibly can. Um, some sessions get done very, very quickly uh, over the course of a couple of weeks, and some records go on for many, many months, even to this day. Uh, it's interesting because Kate just brought up the uh, our former student, <laughs> excuse me, Teresa, who um, uh, is working with artists on the road. And when she's working with artists, one thing she has to do is she has to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. So that basically what happens on the road stays on the road. Is that a similar thing in the studio world? That, and can, that, that can happen. Sometimes people that are very protective of their files as they should be, um, do want the studios to sign an NDA. We protect the files. You know, we, we, we try to really make sure it's an environment that get people don't have to worry about stuff getting leaked and that's not ever happened here. So we're really good about that. We keep on top of it. But you know, in any given day here, the Rolling Stones could be in one room and Rihanna could be in the other. And that's kind of like the cross-section of what happens here. Um, so uh, you, again, you're dealing with the highest level of artistry. So you have to give them the, the respect, but also have boundaries and protect their music and their files and their instruments for that matter. Is your business built around volume or is it built around uh, fewer artists, but they're spending more time in the studio? It's a combination of both. I mean, mm -hmm. Sometimes in some years, there's many puzzle pieces that make up the overall business for the year. And then sometimes there's clients that come in, again, for very long stretches of time. It depends. A lot of records today, people can move around, move the files around, uncompressed. It's different than when it was analog tape and digital tape. And people would leave the recording studio in New York if they were here and they wanted to go to Los Angeles or London or Tokyo. They had to make safety copies of their tapes. That took time to do. And then you had to ship and make sure they get where they had to get to on time, uh, whether it was, you know, whatever courier service you used. Now it's a very different thing. Files can be moved very quickly from, you know, one computer to, the, to another based on, you know, the speed of the internet. When did everything start to change? Uh, obviously, you know, you had your traditional uh music industry and then but you know uh, on the studio side we know on the recorded music side napster really did a number on recorded music but on your end was it early uh late 90s or was it before that or was it in the 2000s no, I, would, I would say the real transition to go from tape whether it be analog or digital to an actual digital file pro tools for example that started to happen in the early 2000s you could see that shift was coming because the portability of the music and instant access of it was a lot different than rewinding a tape machine. So uh, I, I would say it started, I, I noticed it uh, on one of the Matchbox 20 records that we did back in 2002, I believe. Uh, I noticed a lot of Pro Tools use, more so the tape machines. And then I went, hmm, this is interesting. This looks like this is what's gonna start to happen. And it's exactly when I noticed that shift. I would say it was 2000, it was 2001 or 2002. They worked on an album. Um, Matt Cyrillic and then Goldsmith's Riggs in our big scoring on 54th Street. Um, so, yeah, that's when I saw the shift start to happen. But still, most things were digital tape based at that point or analog tape based. And there's only a few small percentages of clients that came in 
uh, on Pro Tools. Because before that, it was sound tools. Uh, is there much analog tape being done anymore today? Is it just maybe a, a, a absolutely zero? Yeah. Zero. Zero. I think uh, uh, most people at this point want to record through an analog console and have great analog microphones and great analog outboard gear. But again, it's a, it's, it's, it's a mixture of plugins as well. Uh, people certainly are mixing and in, and in some cases when they're recording. But uh, no, no, that, that, that shift, um, I would say, started to happen 20 years ago. So with that change that you saw uh, 20 years ago and how things have changed recently um, with, um, as like uh, you say, like bedroom recorders these days with like, uh, you can mix and master a full album, not saying like how well it will be mixed and mastered by yourself in your own bedroom with your own equipment. How, um, um, how has that changed things for you guys? Like, uh, how have you seen that change the industry on your? Um, I think it's just, it's another tool on how, how to make records. I think, you know, the end result is that it's still going through a console and microphones that are predominantly analog. Sometimes uh, when people are mixing, they stay completely in the box. And sometimes people are using the console and the outboard gear as well as plugins. It depends. It depends how, how often people have to go back to recall mixes. Um, but, you know, it's no different than the change that's also happening now, which is different than just talking about files not being on tape, you know, being actual computer files is the immersive aspect of the music industry. The fact that uh, there's a lot of stuff being mixed in Dolby Atmos and Sony 360 Reality Audio. Um, we've had Joan Jett in here. Um, she started... Uh, back in December of last year and through March, she was in for quite some time mixing a lot of her catalog um, in uh, both Dolby Atmos 714 and Sony 360 Reality Audio. And we've, we've been noticing that's happening with more and more clients. Some stuff they're working on now that I can't talk about because maybe the artists haven't let the world know they're doing it yet. But now with Apple Music expecting immersive files to be delivered with stereo mixes, um, more and more people are doing it. They're going back to their catalog and the new records are doing that besides just doing immersive mixing for, for films and TV. So that's a change that's happening that you have to adapt to. So we're constantly always adapting and it's kind of a, a, a mixture of both the best of analog and the best of digital with the exception of there not being analog tape. That's really the key or digital tape for that matter. Those two things are really have completely quieted down, which is something that I kind of anticipated was gonna happen about 10 years ago. Um, you were, not to take it back uh, too far, but you were talking before about um, leaks and how different recording studios would deal with that. Do you really think it was good luck so far? Or do you think, I mean, it's probably part of your hiring system, yeah? How do you keep, how do you keep? It's part of my hiring system and our firewalls and just how we actually handle files. Um, there's a, there's a lot to that's a very there's not enough time in this interview to explain how we actually do that but uh, you know listen it's gonna it's gonna happen in the music industry but we don't let it happen here so I think we've been we've also been lucky so it's a it's a combination of, of a few things yes can you uh, I'm sorry just uh, going back to the leak thing can you talk at all about some of the things you do to prevent leaks I think it really comes down to the people you're hiring. That's really, that's certainly how I do it. Uh, that's one of the main things besides the technical aspect of it, and the defenses that are set up for that. But um, yeah, and it's just, that's not something that's ever happened here. And I think that there's a, a respect thing. People come in here and they know better. So, um, you know, this is, it's very hard to get a position here. Very, very difficult. And this is one of the reasons why. This again, some of that will be very proprietary if I were to say exactly what it is that I do. What um, what goes into the uh, management of these? Of how many employees do you guys have at your studio? Do you know well, off the top of your head? Yeah, no, no, I do. Um, as the music business has changed, I mean, a lot of times you're dealing with a lot of freelance people as well. So to really create a staff, you have to um, really vet the people that are coming in here. And you know, in the heyday of all those rooms at the Hit Factory um, between New York, Miami, and London. Um, even just New York and Miami, we were at about 120 people. 
Uh, now it's a very different thing. It's like in less than 10 people. That's only two studios. If there were 10 studios here, the numbers do change. You need more engineers. But pretty much in, in this facility, different than many other facilities around the country, um, it's really me and varying levels of engineers. That's what it is. There's not a lot of you know bureaucracy in the studio uh, and a lot of extra additional people around. So that's probably answers the earlier question about how you control and protect people's music. Um, we protect them digital files, the same way we protect tape, for the tape library and security and so on and so forth. But um, I think the best way to kind of describe it would be, it does come down to the people. And we, the staff is small. I think we're, the way I've always looked at this is this is a heavyweight fighter at these studios, but it's really more like we're middleweights that can knock out heavyweights. And we kind of are leaner and meaner. And I think as a business model, according to your business, that does work. Because it's hard for people to make money in this business unless they really have the experience know what they're doing. Having a company that has so much growth and is continuing to grow, um, is it like entirely word of mouth or is it um, networking? Like how? Oh, no, it's, it's definitely networking and it's word of mouth and it's a little bit of social media. I wouldn't say it's a ton of that. I mean, we're trying to improve on that but I don't know how much the social media thing is going to affect which artists come in here because we come in here and we give them a lot of privacy. We don't post when they're here. You know, I can, when One Direction was here in 2013, there was so much paparazzi outside the building. And that's happened before with many other artists. That, that's why you can't really post and say, oh, Eric Clapton's here or Kendrick Lamar's here. He's working on a new record. You have to wait till they leave. Um, you really can't do it when they're here. Not just because of the, the, the frenzy and excitement that it might create, but also you have to protect these people on a security basis. But if you, so we are dealing with people's lives and you know, we have to try to respect that. We don't really start to promote things digitally until after people are not here. Do you guys have, um, do you guys have contacts uh, that you have personally that you contact if there was to be like a situation of like um excess paparazzi or no no we that, that that's really stuff that would happen outside of the building that's got nothing to do with us but um again people come here work in these studios knowing that there's a way that we handle when they're here um it's kind of almost you take it for granted it's a given as to how we uh, are very very private and discreet who are the people booking time with you? Is it managers? Is it a product manager at a label? Is it the artist themselves? Yeah, no, it's, it, no it's, it's a lot of times it's, it comes from the artist uh, or the producer or the engineer. Mm -hmm. um, it does come from record labels, from the A&R department, from the A&R administration departments, uh, from the presidents at the label, sometimes from the promotion and marketing department, uh, or the manager of the artist or band. It's a combination of everything. It's, it's, not one particular source uh, where it comes from. And when they're calling you or the, the person who's uh, in charge of, of booking the rooms, are there different packages that they're getting? Like here's the a straight hourly rate. Here's the rate if you need a one or two different engineers, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, it's different ways. Sometimes people book it by the hour or they book it by the day. Um, sometimes they bring in their own engineer or they use our engineers or they use multiple engineers of ours. Um, it depends what stage the record's being uh, worked on, whether it's recording or overdubs, or it's just the writing stage at the very, very beginning. Because keep in mind, like when people are making hip hop records and rap and trap records and pop records for that matter, in today's world, a writing session for a session like that can get done a lot of it in the control room. Uh, and the vocals maybe happen out in the live room. So that would really be more of a tracking day in a traditional rock situation where if, uh, I don't know, Radiohead walked into the studio and uh, they came in to cut basic tracks, for example, um, that's a tracking day. That's what writing sessions are in the pop and hip hop world. And those, the, a, lot, a lot of big things come from those sessions. So they really are considered tracking dates. What's interesting is you, you're, you've been around for generations of artists. You know, if you go back to your father's time in the, I think you said 75, up to now so that's 47 years yeah. 
Um, you know, so I don't know what defines a generation, but that's three to four different generations of artists. How have over the generations have you been able to still attract clientele into your doors? Are are you still do you have uh, marketing? Do you go to conferences? Is it just networking? What are the things that you do to keep your name out there so they know to call you? It's really it's really the pedigree of the name of the Hit Factory and of Germano. When I originally named these studios Germano in the beginning, before this transition over to the Hit Factory again, um, it's just the level of quality that people know they're going to get when they're here. But it's the relationships and it's the building of those relationships on a minute to minute basis, it just doesn't stop. I don't have anybody else do it, but the person you're looking at. So the engineers, of course, uh, are doing the same type thing. Um, they're trying to build their name up and become producers or big mixers. Some of them become artists every now and again, but um, it's a team effort with the engineers here. And uh, you have to you have to really work on this. It, it's, 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 it's going to conferences, it's being at concerts, it's being backstage. It's um, it's taking people out. It's just you know it's building friendships, not just networking. Networking sometimes sounds so um, I don't know what the right word is there. It just kind of doesn't seem to be real. But of course, we all do it. It's part of every industry. But it's again, it's the the, the generic answer for me to give you. It's just the constant building and maintaining of friendships. That's really what this comes down to. And then I think that's that has kind of evolved through the you know, four, almost five decades of us being in the studio business as a family. Yeah, that's interesting because if you think about it, the people who you knew in the music industry, like on the recorded music side in the, we'll call it the early 2000s, many of them got blown out yeah. because of Perfect. that. Because I was at Universal and then right when I left, like the house was burning down. You know, so many people who I used to work with aren't there anymore. Um, so from your perspective, while you're trying to save your business at the, at the same time, you're also trying to, wow, there are new people coming in. Yep. Who do I talk to? All that kind of stuff. And, and, and you have to be able to relate to people that are younger. I mean, it's, and you have to give them their privacy and give them their ability to kind of grow as artists, um, whether that's, a, again, a producer, a musician, an engineer, or a, big, or a huge band or a huge artist. So um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's maintaining relationships and constantly reinventing yourself. So, not just me, it's just reinventing the studios. You know, being able to transition from analog to digital tape and then to the DAW world, which we're gonna be in forever now. And then also now this immersive aspect of what's going on, which creates more excitement in people making records, whether they're working, you can make great records at home, you can make great records in studios. I think when you're in major studios, it's a different thing. It's a different breed, um, but you want that to be accessible to everybody. So how do you do that? Um, you have to constantly reinvent yourself. It's, 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 it's so many different factors and pieces that go into making this cake taste good all the time and be the right cake for the clients so they want to be here and enjoy it. Um, you have to. Uh, you have to be on top of it. You can't, you, can't, you can't rest on your laurels at all. Talk about the, um, you know, you getting new, new blood in the, in the building. Uh, do you hire interns? How do you hire people? No, we don't. We don't do interns. Um, I think we have not ever done that. It's really entry level people that come in with experience from either working at other uh, studios, not necessarily major studios. Sometimes it's good, and they've worked at a number of different studios uh, around New York or around the United States. Or sometimes, you know, it's just it's just actual applicants that come from school. Um, that come from a university or college that has a great music program. Some are, are some are more geared toward musicianship, and others are more toward production and engineering. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to, to to do an internship situation here with the level of people. Again, that probably goes back to the question a few minutes ago about security and how you protect people's files and their music. Um, it's just it, it's a, it's a it's a very small community here. And I try to keep it that way. And I'm sure as I grow again and start to have more studios, um, I don't know how big the staff will get. I think the smaller, the better, to be quite honest. If you were a kid coming out of college, say, today, um, I know you mentioned you didn't you didn't go to college, you said, right? But um, like, for example, William Patterson, we have a really good, we call it SEA, Sound Engineering Arts Program. Um, let's say you were coming out of a program program like that today. 
would you try and start your own thing? Would you immediately, would you hustle and try and uh, work it? It depends what that own thing is. You're talking about becoming a producer or an engineer. You're talking about becoming an artist or being in a band. Engineer, more on the studio engineering side. Engineering side. I think you want to try to get jobs at various studios of all different levels. You want to know how to record a band. You want to know how to, you know, react on a pop vocal situation, a hip hop vocal situation, a rock vocal situation. Um, I think as much experience as you can get in those studios. And a lot of those studios are going to offer internships. Now, um, it's a different thing. Here, I'd rather just pay people and have the position as opposed to just be this free internship, which a lot of studios do, which I don't believe in. Um, but you want to gain that experience as much as possible. There are times, there are times from, from numerous colleges that I'll hire people that have not worked in a studio before, but have worked at the school's studio. But that is kind of few and far between. It doesn't happen that often. It's kind of like lightning striking. So you kind of need to work at numerous other studios before a studio like this is going to give you that opportunity. I think one thing we skipped, um, Kate kind of mentioned it briefly at the beginning. Could you kind of go through the list of the amazing albums and artists who have recorded at the various hit factories going way back? Because there's so many. And I think um, a lot of people here would probably get a real appreciation for what you do and who you are if you kind of went through some of those. I, well, I, I'd say that the, the album that put the studios on the map back in 1975-76 was Songs in the Key Alive by Stevie Wonder. That was a record where when he came into the studio, he was supposed to come in for three weeks and he wound up staying nine months. Um, he made that record mostly uh, between the hit factory and his studio. Uh, it was Wonderland at the time out in Los Angeles. And that was the one that really, that was the one that really did it. Um, and that was one of our right, early bookings when the studios first opened after my father acquired the hit factory. And then, you know, between 75 to 80, working on David Bowie's Station to Station, the Rolling Stones' Emotional Rescue, uh, Paul Simon, One Trick Pony soundtrack, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy, and the album that preceded that, which was recorded during Double Fantasy, which was Milk and Honey. Those were all things that really made it happen from like 75 to 80. Um, and then if you look at the 1980s, uh, the two records that stand out in the 80s that I think made a big impact on the studios was we did the last year, uh, Bruce Springsteen, when he was recording uh, uh, Born in the USA. So that album, we got the back half of that album. Um, and then uh, we did the entire Graceland album, 97% of it, Paul Simon. And that was a record he was in the studio with, with us for 24 months. So you know, that's the record. So you know, people really did take their time. They could afford to do that. But those would be the ones that I think really stand out. Um, and of course, as the 90s come along, and we're getting to the mid-90s, certainly ready to die uh, by, born by um, uh, Notorious B.I.G. was a really big record. Uh, that was something that was a kind of a game changer. Here at these studios, I think the record that um, helped me incredibly with these new studios was Born This Way, which is the album by Lady Gaga back in 2012. Um, and there's so many others. You have to go to the website to look. Whether or whether uh, I'm just trying to think of a star, Kendrick Lamar or Jay Balvin. Um, yeah, you have you, you've had Travis Scott and uh, yeah, Post did, Malone we did, too. We did it. We did a bunch. We've done a few albums of Travis. The, the most famous would be Astro World. We did a lot of that. Um, Post Malone has worked on four records here: uh, Hollywood is Bleeding, Stony, um, and the new album. Uh, which just came out, the 12 Carat Toothache. So, you know, again, a, a ton of stuff in the pop and hip hop business. Um, and then U2 had, you know, worked on uh, their EP uh, that they had done uh, under a blood red sky. That was a big thing in the early 80s, as well as working on the pop album. Um, and then you can go into like the Mariah Carey world. We did like, you know, six of her albums, and Whitney Houston, four or five of her albums. Uh, uh, Celine Dion, all, all, all the big stuff from the Titanic and our other albums. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, again, the constant changing 
of who the artists were, I think is what tra attracts people to the studios. What um, do you remember any, who took like, you said uh, someone took uh, 20, 24 months, you said? Yeah, Paul Simon, yeah. Paul Simon. Do you have anyone that you remember that took more than that to make a single album? Paul Simon. Paul Simon, yeah. And when he worked on his uh, soundtrack to the Broadway show, The Cape Man, he did that hero for a period of seven years. I think he gets the record. Yeah. I'm pretty certain of that, yeah. Is there a rock and roll hall of fame entry for studios? I know executives are in, I know artists are in. Has anybody ever talked to you about that? No, and that's something that should be there. That's a really good point. I've often thought about that. Uh, yeah, same thing for mastering studios. There should be a recording studio. And when you, when you, you know, the recording studio thing is a bit broad. So that would also mean recording and mixing. So it'd be both. But yes, there should be. There's not. And maybe one day there will be. If you can start, you know, blowing that horn, that'd be great. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because I was thinking about that. I was thinking this amazing a piece of rock and roll history, a, you know, just popular music history, because it's rock, it's hip hop, you know, it's R&B, it's everything. And it's all encapsulated, you know, in your studios, specifically in New York as well. And it's, um, it, it, it hit me that I don't think that, yeah, and you just admitted it, that it's not. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you could say that there's so many places that, you know, over the years between New York and London and Los Angeles that would warrant that, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there are iconic places where these these temples of sound have you know had played a part in these great recordings. Of course, it comes down to the artist and the singer and the songs. I mean, that's gonna you know that's gonna that's that's paramount for everything else. But yeah, it would be nice if we could be recognized at some point. But if not, you know, it's a great suggestion. Right, but there is no song. I mean, you need a songwriter, but there is no recording without the studio. You know, so yes, that, that, that's I I would say that's correct. But still, you can you can make a great record in your bedroom. It does it does happen. It doesn't happen, I think, on the right on, on a regular basis the way it is if you're in a modern recording studio on all different levels. I mean, what what makes a major studio? That's that's a really hard thing to, to answer. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I believe in the importance of recording studios. Um, I don't let these technological changes or the way people deliver music uh, or the way people create music or write music affect the fact that I'm very, very, you know, very positive on the studio business and always have been. And again, that's because I know the importance of the relationships. That's the key to this whole thing. Besides the fact that the studios have to sound great, you have to have a great staff and great engineers, and people feel very comfortable and all the equipment needs to continue to work. All those things are, you know, again, very important pieces to this puzzle. If it's a crazy business. It's a crazy. It's a crazy business. It's not for everybody. If you don't mind me asking, um, how much, uh, like, how much is in a studio? Like, how much money do you think goes into the equipment of a studio? It depends like on how on how, you know how how big you want to go but you know it, it's usually multiple million dollars of investment however you know you can do stuff for you know a smaller amount of money depending upon what your budget is and where you're building it whether or not you own the building or you lease the space or it's in your house your basement or your garage or, or your dorm i mean there's so many different ways you can do this on so many different levels um as a technology in terms of how you record things has uh, become even extra efficient. So yeah, no, but usually it's it's multiple million dollars to do it on a, on a large scale. I think we have a few questions. Sure. Um, ooh, we have a bunch. All right. Um, let's see. I saw Elena first. I was just asking, can anyone record in the studio? Anyone can, yeah. And really what it comes down to, Elena, is, you know, when people pick up the phone or they email you it's how they kind of ask the question like how you know it's sometimes they don't have the budgets there are people that work here sometimes that don't really have the budget to be in a facility like this but depending upon how they respectfully handle a phone call when they're calling into the studio where they're talking to me or one of these speak to me one of the engineers 
Um, yeah, it's open to everybody. It really is. Predominantly, is it signed artists? Is that 97% of what happens here? Yes, it is. Um, I see another question. Did you work with 50 Cent when he recorded The Power of the Dollar at the Hit Factory? Uh, yes. I, I, didn't, I wasn't personally uh, taking that booking, but he did do a bunch of work. And he worked on one of his albums here uh, in the like maybe 2009 or 10. It's on the website. I forget which one it was. We have a little record on the wall in the hallway. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was a cool artist at the studio, especially back then. Uh, we have, has there ever been a piece of advice that has stuck with you from another artist? Uh, I have to think about that. Let's go back to that question. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit it. I'll be thinking in the background if there's any one particular thing. Um, and I'm not sure. I have to think about that. Yeah, maybe. We have another one. Uh, what is the best way, they said to get an internship at the studio, but since you guys don't do internships, I'll tweak it a little bit. What do you look for in new employees? What are um, traits that you specifically look for? In I, think the artists or... I, I think their recommendation letters from the college that they were at, the people they've worked with, if they've worked at other smaller studios or large studios, I think those four or five recommendation letters go a long way, certainly with me, because obviously I act as the HR department here as well. Um, so that's a big thing. And, and having experience being a musician on some level, whether it's a, a multiple instruments or not, um, and any kind of production that you might have done or songwriting, uh, all those things factor in. And I think, you know, I try to look for people that uh, were, you know, raised as well as they could be raised and understand respect and know what it is to, to, to work around extremely famous people that many of us admire. Uh, Elena asked, how much does it cost to book a studio session? Let's just say, I, she didn't spe uh, specify a time, but let's just say you wanted a two-hour slot in we one of your voice recording studios. We're one of the few studios in New York that doesn't take like short two-hour bookings. Um, so how much like a full day be? It could be anywhere from $3,000 to $3,500 a day in that range. Um, I see another one. What would you recommend to small music artists who are trying to get noticed? To play a lot of gigs, to go out and play as many clubs and bars as they possibly can. Um, or when they're not a rock band in that situation and they're a pop artist or hip hop artist, you have to really know how to use social media and uh, you have great songs. That's the major. You really have to have great songs. That's the key, regardless of genre. All right. Well, I think um, we're basically out of time. So, uh, Troy, we really want to thank you for joining us today. This has been very enlightening. I hope it was helpful. Thank you for setting this up. Oh, no. Thank you, Kate. I mean, I'm happy we were able to do this. And uh, if anyone else has any other questions, you can always give them my email and feel free to reach out to me directly. And when you graduate and you're ready to work in the studio, I'll be more than happy to, to talk to any of you. So kind of, you know, you never know who the, the next big engineer is going to be uh, or big producer. And any way that I can help people facilitate that, that is honestly what I'm here to do. Wow, that's great. So thank you. So um, you mean that too. Yeah. that's awesome. And so I'm going to end the show now and it's going to sound like I didn't accept your sincereness. Um, but at the end of every show, we don't say hello. At the end of every show, we say, Adios!